welcome to the Old Man Sailing Podcast. This is John Passmore and I'm talking to you from the anchorage at Las Palmas in the Canaries. And this is a bit of an experiment because occasionally people go past in outboards and they call to each other between boats and the boat is constantly rolling so there is the occasional noise. But I've listened to it and I didn't find it intrusive. Uh, Perhaps you'd let me know if you do. Anyway, first of all, we've got something that I wrote back in November or December, I think it might have been, of 2018, about dolphins. I have just been reading Leslie Johansson Knack's book 14, about sailing the Pacific, and this is her description from 1974. Seeing the dolphins every single day never got boring or old. There were often 20 or 30 dolphins, maybe more, because it was hard to count when they all came up at different times. It reminded me of the passage in Bernard Moitessier's The Long Way. I hear familiar whistlings and hurry out as always when porpoises are around. I don't think I've ever seen so many at once. The water is white with their splashing, furrowed in all directions by the knives of their dorsal fins. There must be close to a hundred. A tight line of twenty-five porpoises swimming abreast goes from stern to stem of the starboard side in three breaths. Then the old group veers right and rushes off at right angles, all the fins cutting the water together in the same breath taken on the fly. I watch, wonderstruck. More than ten times they repeat the same thing. What he is describing here is the legendary incident when the dolphins warmed in that Joshua was heading straight for the rocks on Stewart Island at the southern tip of New Zealand. That was in 1968. And between 1987 and 1991, when I sailed twice from Falmouth to the Azores and back and completed in the Ostart and Newport, barely a day went by without a visit from dolphins or whales. Yet this year, returning to ocean sailing with a passage from the Western Isles to the Azores and then back to the Solent, I think I could count the sightings on the fingers of one hand. Was I just unlucky, or is this an example of what we're doing to the planet and its wildlife? Or is it, as Douglas Adams suggested in his Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy follow-up, So Long and Thanks for All the Fish, simply a case of the most intelligent life-forms leaving the Earth by their own means? Oddly enough, I received a comment to that post on the blog, from the Davises. Now the Davises turned out to be the young couple who had bought uh, Largo, yes, Largo, the first rival, back in, oh, it must have been 1989, 1991 or something. And gosh, what? They said, come down to Falmouth, plenty of dolphins down here and around the Sillies. And I did, and I met up with them, and they still had Largo. There's a, uh, there's a post about that in the blog. I can't remember what it's called. It might be called Reunion, but you can probably search. Just search for Largo. Meanwhile, this is from January 2019. It's called Lost. 
There used to be a time when you could get lost on a boat. Well, not exactly lost, but maybe you might experience that nagging sensation of not being entirely sure that you were where you thought you ought to be. Of course, this didn't matter too much in the middle of an ocean. The sun would come out tomorrow and all that. But then along came GPS, and we all knew precisely where we were every moment of every day, right down to the last decimal place on the LCD screen. So how is it that in this age of digital navigation I found myself in the middle of a ploughed field, staring at Google Maps by moonlight, and wondering where I'd left the boat? Well, actually, that's not a fair question. I, I knew exactly where I'd left the boat, anchored comfortably at the south end of Kirby Creek in Walton Backwaters on England's east coast. Anyway, if I wasn't sure, I could always use ShipFinder on the phone in app, and because I'd taken the precaution of switching on the AIS five minutes before I left, a little trick I picked up when coming back to the dinghy and finding Swanage Bay had gone opaque. No, the difficulty was navigating the Essex countryside, particularly the myriad farm tracks which don't feature on Google Maps. It had all looked so easy in daylight. I had anchored in my favourite spot and left Samsara to the care of the seals and the geese while I took the dinghy up to the little jetty on the edge of the saltings. Then, manhandling the folding bicycle up the sea wall, all I had to do was pedal along it for a quarter of a mile without riding into the mud on one side or over the ten-foot drop on the other, before turning left at an isolated barn, the only feature on this fabulously wild landscape and start on the best part of a mile up a cart track, through the sugar beet fields to the farm, where the track turned into a concrete lane. Half a mile up this, and I would come to the road. All I had to do was turn left to Kirby Lesoken, two pubs, two churches, one shop. This, I should add, is currently my commute to work. Yes, I've gone back to work for a bit. You can read all about it on my Facebook page, the network marketing blog. Note, that no longer exists. Never mind. It means that for a couple of weeks, the dinghy ride, the muddy ascent to the wobbly staging, and the ride along the sea wall is going to become just as much a routine as the district line used to be from Chiswick Park to Kensington High Street. It was just that Google Maps' version of Dean's Hall Farm, Kent's Hall Farm, and Hall Farm itself was not a patch on Transport for London's version. With sunset somewhere in the middle of the afternoon, I was well aware that it would be dark by the time I made the return journey. I had two tail lights, one on top of my high-vis cycle helmet, and three front lights, two of them flashing no less. I was a bit like a two-wheeled Christmas tree. And so I progressed, highly visibly, past the first farm track. That couldn't be the one because it smelled strongly of farm and I didn't remember that. The second turning seemed to be much more familiar. It progressed from concrete lane to muddy track. There was a farmhouse with cosily lit windows. I imagined the ruddy-faced farmer presiding over a table with a picture-book farmer's wife and half a dozen rosy-cheeked children tucking into home-slaughtered crackling and cider. By the time I ended up in the ploughed field, 
I hope they choked on it. Hauling the bike out of the mire, have you ever manhandled a folding bicycle? It keeps on folding on you. I set off back up the lane, only to find that much of the ploughed field was now wedged firmly under the rear mudguard, so that it was only with the greatest effort that the wheel could be made to turn at all. How do you get a clod of mud out from under your mudguard in the dark, in the middle of nowhere, and certainly miles from any useful implement? Well, why do you think it's called a mudguard? In the end, I had to use one of the only two barrows I had with me, and still the wheel only retoted under protest. By the time I regained what passed for the main road, I felt I had competed in the Alpine section of the Tour de France. So, where now? Google Maps offered three farm tracks, none of which went anywhere near where I estimated the jetty to be. Should have stuck an electronic pin in it. I dismissed the first, but on the other hand, the third appeared to be miles away. I turned left and investigated the first again. Sure enough, there was a farm down there, and a pond, which I remembered, but no unpaved road going any further. Back to option three, which was another two miles back in the opposite direction. There were some familiar features down that one. Speed bumps, a high hedge, sugar beet, a pond, and then, of course, another muddy field. I'd had enough of this. I'd been pedalling up and down, getting nowhere for an hour. I was covered in mud. I had the other half of last night's spaghetti puttanesca waiting for me, made with sardines for extra ziz. I would ask at the farmhouse. I'm not proud. Given that there is plenty of spare land in North Essex, the farmhouse was at the end of a long, sweeping, crunching drive. The farmer was at the door long before I reached it, which might have had something to do with the fact that I was still flushing like the Regent Street decorations. Ah, he said, I know exactly where you want to be. And he did, too. In fact, it was his mooring I had borrowed for the adventures described in November the 16th last year under the short but apt title of Mud. Yes, more of it. So, where did I need to go? You guessed it, back to the first turning, the one I had dismissed right at the start of this shambles. Sure enough, there was the dinghy waiting obediently at the jetty, and in the distance, Samsara's automatic anchor light, shining like a beacon. Welcome home. Lowestoft If you wondered why people write sailing blogs, here's an answer for you. You get to meet all sorts of useful people. My friend Jeremy is one such. I've never met him, of course. He's a virtual friend although we have exchanged an enormous number of emails as he attempted and finally succeeded in ordering the health supplement which keeps me going see the good health page on my blog. Anyway, I mentioned that uh, I had been sitting on a Morgan Felixstowe ferry for the past 48 hours waiting for a weather window to jump to Lowestoft. Tomorrow looks good. Whereupon Jeremy sends me the following. Lowestoft. Fished out of there back in the 70s, skippering a 50-foot long liner.
cod in the winter and spur dog in the summer, together with a bit of trawling. Bloody horrible entrance with a good ebb tide and a bit of slop. Tide runs hard across the entrance, trying to push you into the north wall. Then, as soon as you get your nose into the harbour, it pushes your stern around, trying to get you to hit the south wall. They had a massive tragedy there in the 1800s. A summer storm came out of nowhere and they lost many lives on the harbour entrance with the sailing boats unable to make it into the harbour before being smashed against the north wall. All I got from reeds was shelter good, accessible 24 hours. Wind over tide, especially on the ebb, can make the entrance lively. I said I'd let him know how I get on. I mentioned there about the mineral supplement I recommend. And interestingly, here I am in uh, Las Palmas in the Canaries, and every day I go ashore at 12 o'clock to the harbour office, because there I will find a queue of about a dozen people, sometimes as many as 20, all waiting to check out or check in with the immigration officer who turns up at midday. And I just go along the queue looking for French people, and then I give them a leaflet about the French translation of Old Man Sailing, which is just about beginning to gather some traction in the French market. And uh, I met uh, an English fellow who said, oh, yes, yes, I know you. I've, um, I've been taking your mineral supplement. And then he said, what a lot of people say, is that it's difficult to know if it's doing any good. Well, this is certainly true, because this is not a, a magical potion. It's not a, a medicine which is going to cure your headache in five minutes, because it's not going to force the body to make any changes because of its chemical formula. It's just food. And that's going to take a long time to make any changes. I mean, obviously, if you were eating uh, a diet of nothing but junk food and you suddenly t uh, changed overnight to a healthy diet, you wouldn't suddenly feel better the next morning or even the next week. But over the course of a year or two, there would be a big difference. And this is the same thing. However, you can find out that something is happening by just being aware of what changes. For a lot of people, the most obvious thing is that their hair and their nails grow more quickly. And this shows that the supplement is making changes in your body. So if you're taking it and you're thinking, is it doing any good? If your hair or your nails are growing faster, or any other little changes which you didn't expect. I mean, I noticed that a little patch of skin on my nose, which had never healed, suddenly did so. So... Just be aware of what's going on. Meanwhile, I've got something here. I called it Soggy Bottom. I don't think I have posted anything about my folding bike. The only time it's been mentioned at all was when it got me lost one miserable winter's night in the sugar beet fields of Essex. But in fact, the Brompton is just about the best thing on the boat. Brompton bicycles are very fashionable now. You can see people in Hugo Boss suits carrying them off the underground at Bank and Westminster. They are certainly expensive enough to be fashionable. You can buy a flashy racing bike for less, but your carbon fibre thoroughbred will not collapse into a bag no bigger than a brick salesman's briefcase. Of course, 
mine was free, but that was 25 years ago when hardly anyone had heard of them. Certainly I hadn't. I had just announced in the travel pages of the Daily Telegraph that Tamsin and I had given up our jobs and henceforth would be living aboard our tiny catamaran and exploring the UK from the outside. And there, to illustrate it, was a picture of us doing nautical things, and in the foreground, lashed to the rail, were two folding bikes. They were early Bickertons, a type you don't see anymore, and I'm not surprised. Being made entirely of aluminium, the frame would bend as you pedalled along, giving the whole thing the riding characteristics of a bucking bronco machine in a Liverpool pub. No sooner had the photograph appeared than Andrew Ritchie, the inventor of the Brompton, wrote and said that under no circumstances should I set off on my adventure with a Bickerton. He insisted I would need something much more sturdy, and he would donate one of his own machines. By this time, Tamsin and I had become rather blasé about being given things. Now that we were in the paper, shoes and clothes and bits of equipment turned up almost daily. Still, a brand new Brompton was a real coup. Looking at the competition's website today, it appears that the Bickerton people have caught up. Indeed, their latest folding bike looks a lot like the Brompton. But it is too late. I am a Brompton convert. I rode it on excursions all round the UK. I rode it on wonderful cycle paths in the Netherlands, where the bicycles are the highest form of life. It carried all the shopping, it delivered 20 litres of petrol back from the garage. There seemed to be nothing it could not do. For the 18 years I lived ashore, it was my daily mode of transport around town. Even though the family insisted I looked ridiculous, why didn't I get a mountain bike like everyone else? But the Brompton really is the most brilliant invention, and the fact that my 25-year-old bike is very much the same as the latest version shows that, that Mr. Ritchie had designed that ultimate rarity and almost perfect machine. I say almost perfect, because I have discovered the one design flaw. As I mentioned, you may have read about us, me and the bike, getting lost among the sugar beet and all the mud we collected under the mudguard, which is why it's called a mudguard. Well, a couple of days ago it occurred to me that there was still an awful lot of sugar beet field bound up in the mechanism, and this might not be good for even the most reliable piece of machinery. So I bought an aerosol of special cycle cleaner. You spray it on, wait for all the muck to dissolve, and then hose it off. Obviously, the best way to do this is with the bike upside down. Having never looked closely at my bicycle upside down, I had never noticed that there is a big hole in the bottom, right in the middle, next to the pedals, just where I was directing the jet from the hose to clear away all the now emulsified mud. The water gurgled away merrily down the hole, almost as if this was a bath emptying. Of course, the hole is not a bath plug at all. It is the open end of the saddle tube on the other end of which is the saddle, the specially designed Brompton saddle, a legend in cycling comfort and more than that, waterproof when rained upon while parked outside the pub, at least when rained upon outside the pub, providing the bicycle is upright. If the bicycle is not upright and you direct a hose straight down the saddle tube, 
all the water will emerge at the other end and promptly fill up the saddle from the inside. Now, the reason the Brompton saddle is so comfortable is because it is made of a clever sort of semi-rigid sponge. And we all know how a sponge and water go together. It was not until yesterday, when finally we got some sun, that the saddle dried out. In the meantime, well, you will have noticed the title of this post. Soggy Bottom. Roy. There are three things Roy Marshall likes to do. He likes to spend his mornings sitting in his Aladdin's cave of nautical junk and wait for people like me. He likes to raise money for the lifeboat. And he likes to talk. I've been in Olsen Broad, just up the lake from Lowestoft, for five weeks now. Or at least Samsara has, while I went home and took my youngest skiing. But I've spent enough time here to get to know a bit about Roy. It started off when I messed up the delivery address for a parcel, and Roy took it in. A condition of Roy taking in parcels is a pound in the lifeboat box, but that entitles me to a 25% discount on a snapshackle. Then I went back and donated my old anchor connector. After that it was a horse pipe swapped for an aneroid barometer. Places like this can become addictive. Roy hobbles about his treasures, knowing exactly where he can lay his hand on a 9mm bulldog grip or a tank from a 1968 seagull. He hobbles thanks to a kicking he got from a pair of visitors at HM Prison Blunderstone. They were busy delivering a consignment of heroin when Roy, as the prison security officer, decided to confront them. Roy isn't worried about confronting anyone. It might have something to do with boxing for the Navy in his youth, combined services light heavyweight champion 1975. All this I learned while sorting through anodes and clevis pins and full-flow ball valves and a complete stern tube lubricator. I had a bit of a reputation for being aggressive, he remarked as if talking about the weather. That's why they made me the gunner in the Falklands. The gunner? Not a gunner? Yes, the Admiralty had posted him to a requisition trawler. They took off all the fishing gear and refitted it as a minesweeper. But most of the time, Roy and his shipmate ferried the SAS and the SBS around South Georgia. The trawler didn't have any armament when they started out, but then, in view of what they were getting up to, the powers that be found a spare 20mm cannon and gave it to Roy so that he could blast away at the Argentine bombers in San Carlos. Never hit a sausage though, he said, but then nor did they most of the time. They'd fitted propeller fuses to their bombs and then came in so low that there was no time for the propellers to spin for long enough to arm the explosive. Most of the bombs just bounced off. So how much has he raised for the lifeboat? He pulled out a sheaf of receipts. I'm the third highest donor. Wow. In Lowestoft. Good for you, Roy. <coughs> Climate change. 
setting off to sail 350 miles from Lowestoft to Falmouth, you would think you could get away from the Extinction Rebellion people bringing central London to a standstill. Don't get me wrong, I'm all for saving the planet. Also, I'd rather climate change didn't start setting off unseasonable hurricanes. But global warming and Greta Thunberg and the pink boat in Piccadilly Circus seemed to take up the whole voyage. Every time I picked up Radio 2, there were more arrests, and when the 4G signal reappeared off St Catherine's Point, someone on the BBC website had calculated that in order to be carbon neutral by 2025, we're going to need another 130,000 wind turbines. That's right, 130,000. Apparently, they will take up an area twice the size of Wales. Except, of course, they won't actually be in Wales. They'll be offshore. Nobody minds offshore wind farms. After all, there's nothing offshore, is there? Just a lot of sea. Well, yes, that's the problem. Don't get me wrong, I like wind turbines. There is something elegant about them, the sails rotating in endless slow circles, pumping out the kilowatts. They're strangely beautiful in a technological sort of way. I just don't want to have to get in among them, especially with the tide running and the wind dropping. And they're all over the place. I never knew about the greater Gabbard wind farm, I'm familiar with the Gunfleet Sands wind, although the Gunfleet Sands 2 was a surprise, as was Gunfleet 3 and, come to that, Gunfleet Demonstration wind farm. The course did avoid the London Array and the Kentish Flats wind farms, but that still left the Thanet wind farm, which, being just over the top corner of Kent, is really inconvenient. It was a relief somehow to dive into the traffic of the Dover Strait. At least the ferries get out of the way. But wait a minute, what was this off Selsey? According to the chart, the Rampion wind farm is under construction. Oh no, it's not. It's up and running with some jazzy new turbines, complete with stylishly curved sails, tipped off with red paint like a new airliner. I don't want to be a global warming denier, because that's worse than being an offshore tax advisor or an MP. And my predilection for sailing a small boat for my own pleasure doesn't count for much when set against the survival of the planet. But is this going to be the end of sailing as we know it? I've just looked at the map and discovered that when I go and see my son at university in Liverpool next month, I will have to find my way either through or round the Rill wind farm and then the Gwinty Moor wind farm, and that's before I even get to the North Hoyle or the Burbo Bank wind farms. Now, if you like these podcasts, you might also be interested in my new audio book. This is The Voyage Number One. British Virgin Islands to Falmouth. Uh, it's literally a diary of a very long 44 days trip from the Caribbean back to the UK. Uh, if you often wondered what it is like to sail an ocean completely alone, that is without any long-range communications, satellite phones, anything like that, just one man on his own in a small boat for an awfully long time, 
then this is it. It's, it's really the minutiae of the business, down to counting the Pringles to see if we'll get there without running out. Now, I did attempt to do, get this onto Audible, which is the Amazon audiobook platform, but the trouble is they have all sorts of quality control constraints, and without building a sound booth inside Sam Sauer's cabin, I was never going to get past them. However, if you think the quality of this podcast is acceptable, then you'll find the audiobook just the same. Uh, it's available through the blog uh, books page, so that's oldmanselling.com forward slash books, and it's called The Voyage. And now, from the good stuff, book one, The Three-Year Itch. The water was over the cabin sole, or at least it would have been if the cabin sole had not been floating three inches above its rightful place. It was time to get a new boat. Odd, isn't it, what happens to the boat you bought so enthusiastically just a few years ago, which you boasted about in the bar? A real bargain, beautiful nick and goes like the clappers. Suddenly she's damp and sluggish, and the best you can find to say about her is that she might fetch enough to pay for one of those new lightweight cruiser racers. The RYA hasn't yet commissioned a survey into the three-year itch, but that's what it is. As predictable as a gale in August and just as troublesome. No matter what plans you might think you have, after the third season, everything changes. The substantial blue-water cruiser, the proper boat that was going to open up new horizons, suddenly becomes an old tub that won't shift without half a gale behind her. Or the home-completed bargain that you bought instead of the small but yard-built alternative, notice how you begin to lose patience with the lockers that never completely close, or the table that collapses in the middle of dinner, or inevitably the sink that leaks directly into the cutlery drawer. The three-year itch means that boats which were bought as day sailors with a caddy for boiling a kettle are suddenly condemned as wholly unsuitable for a fortnight's cruise, while cruising boats in turn end up on the market because they're hugely expensive to keep and really need a paid hand to stay on top of the varnish. The third season, that's when it strikes over two whole summers I had grown used to sliding back the hatch and being greeted by the unmistakable fetid smell of mildew and sodden sleeping bags, but I couldn't take it for a third year. As I set to pumping, I remember wondering how long it would have taken for the boat to sink. I used to spend a lot of time pumping in that little boat. The man who built her made a small mistake in marking the position for the keel bolts. The holes ended up a sort of elliptical shape, and over the years they were packed with just about every type of sealant, from good old corking cotton to the very latest heavily advertised all-purpose gunge. None of these ever did the slightest good, of course, just as they never did any good in stopping the water from getting under the fiberglass sheathing in the cockpit. When I sold her, I had the keels dropped off one more time for the buyer, just to show willing. I often wonder, as I pump out the pint of water from the stern gland of the rival 32 I bought in her place, just how many times he's had them off since. 
I have to keep wondering because if I didn't, I'd become sentimental every time I saw a caprice vibing on its tidal mooring. Because it's true that just as disenchantment sets in after three years, nostalgia arrives after six. Readers who have a talent for arithmetic will have realised by now that nostalgia for the first boat arrives to coincide conveniently with disenchantment over the second. This can cause a certain confusion and might explain why I found myself driving 200 miles to look at a boat six foot shorter than the one I've got. All I could think about was what I have to pay for a mooring, the horrendous estimate I'd had for a new jenny and why they won't let me into Lyme Regis anymore. Somehow the six foot I'd be losing seemed less important than banks of wind instruments and sails that hadn't acquired the shape of carrier bags. I actually stood in the cabin and asked myself what did it matter if the only headroom was under the hatch? I went for a trial sail, slipping along nicely with the merest breath of wind conditions which would have left the rival drifting around in circles. But what I should have been wondering was how a 26-footer would have behaved in last year's gale off Ushant. Would I have been quite so nonchalant about putting a stew in the pressure cooker with a lightweight hull leaping right out of the water? But then we all forget, don't we? Who actually makes a point of remembering the unfortunate incident of the Mulligatawny soup? It happened rather by accident after missing the tide round St Catherine's Point in the Caprice. For four and a half hours I bucketed up and down in the same spot, and in the middle of it all the soup left off the stove, upending itself on the floor, and by the time I'd slithered around trying to mop it up, I looked like some sort of highly spiced mud wrestler. My father's just the same. From the comfort of his 36-foot halberdier, steadfastly maintained to Lloyd's 100A1, he mellows and talks affectionately of his first boat, also an 18-footer, albeit with a 6-foot bowsprit. His leaked not only from the bottom upwards, but also from the deck downwards. The forepeak was a very nasty place, he used to say with fond memory. If you couldn't dry your sails, they would rot. The 18-footer came with a 10-foot dinghy, which he towed all over the south coast. On windy trips back over Chichester Bar, it would try to climb into the cockpit. He put it at bay with the deck brush. Ah, they don't make them like that anymore, says father, adjusting the autopilot a touch and dropping another ice cube into his gin. I grew up thinking I was missing something, because we never blew out a sail and my bunk was always dry. Of course... We did have our moments. With a family of five and a folk boat, that was inevitable. Folk boats don't have five berths, and so someone had to sleep on a lilo on the floor. Father approved of this. It showed we could rough it, but he became terribly forgetful when rising to check the warps, as he liked to do sometime around 0300. The sequence of events never varied. Very gently, so as not to wake anyone, he would step out of his bunk and onto my sister's face. No matter how gently he did this, she never failed to scream. Nor did the rest of us fail to sit bolt upright and crash our skulls on the deckhead. Then we would scream too. 
25 years on, all that we chose to remember is that five of us really did get to Holland in that little boat. Just as I now recall not the mulligatawny soup off St Catherine's Point, but sailing back into pool afterwards, breakfasting on boiled eggs and throwing the shells over my shoulder. The boats coming out of the harbour assumed I'd sailed overnight from France, which did my self-esteem no harm at all. If incidents like that can emerge transformed by the act of memory, imagine what happens to the good times. Good times like the first real channel crossing, when we set the oar to helm off the needles and didn't touch it again until we met the ferry coming out of Cherbourg. Or the day in the marina in Lesadrio, when a Frenchman stepped off something at least twice as big, paused beside us and mused, Ah, so small but so beautiful! And the crew, bikini-clad in the cockpit, fluttered and preened. After a while, the old photographs come out, and somehow you forget that with three people in the cockpit, the self-drainers used to drain inwards, or that the sheet winches were on back to front and the radar reflector obscured the bergie, or even that the cables inside the mast slapped horribly in anything more than a ripple. To hear some of us go on, You'd think there would be a brisk trade in second-hand boats. You'd think the brokers would be run off their feet instead of sitting over caller heaters drinking instant coffee all day. You'd imagine magazines would be filled with adverts and boatyards crawling with owners furtively trying to clinch a deal without handing over 1% to the yard. Well, that might have been the case if only the Almighty, when he set Nor up in the boat-building business, hadn't also invented winter. The relevant passage in Genesis doesn't usually get much publicity because clergymen, having to work on Sundays, tend not to go in for yachting. But it is a fact that when the flood subsided, Noah laid up the ark and stood there surrounded by sleeping bags and coils of running rigging and suddenly came over all sentimental. For there is nothing, absolutely nothing, quite so pathetic as the sight of a yacht out of the water even polished up to look good for the queue of buyers, and even supposing you did manage to get a couple of coats of varnish on her at the beginning of September. She's still as forlorn as the last toy on the shelf. So, all her little faults get forgiven for another year, or at the very least they get written down on a list of things that never get done, and another year we'll see that locker falling open again and more apologies for the table and the rusty spoons until eventually something happens, some unforgettable disaster strikes, some ultimate family row develops and suddenly there's no going back. For some people, impending divorce works quite well. Others opt for a more dramatic solution, like being presented with the wooden spoon at the laying-up dinner for coming last overall. But personally, I find there is nothing, absolutely nothing, quite as effective as a foot of water in the cabin.